My name is Mark Rubenstein, and I am the host of the Navigate Health podcast. I've always enjoyed meeting and connecting with people, and I thought this would be a great way to do that. Everyone has a story to tell, and I hope to be sharing some interesting and inspiring ones. I want to give a shout out to my daughter, Anna, and her friend, Christian, who introduced me to this medium. My first guest inspired me to do this podcast because he simply is one of the most interesting guys I've had the privilege to know. Elliot and I met about three years ago in West Windsor Community Park. He was rucking at the time. And for those of you who don't know what that means, I didn't know it either at the time. It was walking and hiking with a weighted vest or backpack. My friends and I were in the middle of an F3 boot camp workout. We simply met Elliot and quickly invited him to join us at our next workout. He said yes, and the rest they say is history. I'd like to welcome Elliot to the podcast, or should I say welcome photo finish. Would you mind telling the listeners how you got that name? Well, I got, <clears throat> I got the name <clears throat> because with F3, when you join, uh, we give uh, F3 names to people based on their background and experience and so forth. And they, when they asked me what do I do and what I'm interested in, photography. And uh, so Photo Finish came from that uh, photography background. Uh, absolutely. We'll definitely dive into that. Um, I also uh, think the fact that you, uh, in your lifetime, have completed 42 marathons, if I'm not mistaken. That was also a double meeting where we had the photography and we had all finishing all wow. these events. And, and uh, we came up with that name and I thought it was, I thought it was great and it, it fits you perfectly. So... I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. So um, we're going to basically talk to you today about your life and kind of the way that I look through things, which is through a health lens. What have we learned, you know, in terms of um, we talk about these elements of health, movement, fuel, recovery, connection, and endure, which is resilience. And to me, your stories have taught me a lot about that, about resilience. So, um, and what we mean by that is when you get through a difficult time in your life and you come out stronger, either mentally or physically, um, you've been good enough to share these stories with me when we exercise together um, about your resilience. And um, I just, you know, I'm really intrigued about how that's developed through your life. What I'd like to start with a little bit, if you could tell me a little bit about is your experiences in uh, in the Navy and in the service, um, and just some of those experiences, what you learned from that, and you know maybe some things that you've taken with you um, throughout your life. Great. Well, I will say the Navy is one of the uh, the bedrocks of where I am today. Uh, it's interesting that I joined the Navy for the silliest of reasons, because a gentleman I was working with, Dick Bardot, who was a gung ho Marine said, uniforms pick up lint and women. Now, as silly as that sounds, that was the reason I walked into Cornell ROTC and said, hey, I want to join for, for Dick Bardot. And uh, fortunately, they had space, and I got in. And so in 1964, I raised my right hand, which I remember today very distinctly, uh, giving allegiance to the Constitution, and uh, then spent two years on active duty, one year on a LST, landing ship tank, the Sheboygan County, and then it was getting decommissioned, so I got orders to go up to Kodiak, Alaska, to the naval station there, spent a year there. 
subsequently, when I came back down, I was getting my master's at Adelphi University. I got a call from the Navy saying, hey, you know, you have reserve obligations, which I had forgotten about completely. And I said, oh, okay. And they said, by the way, Sandy Hook, New Jersey, they have some units there you may be interested. Which I went out, I looked, I said, interesting. And this unit had to do with inshore undersea warfare, meaning that if there are submarines out there off our coast, we need to hear them, we need to find them. And we do that by doing sonar buoys. We put the sonar buoys out in the water and listen you know, back on land and, and report if we find any. And uh, they're from a couple of other units. And finally, after 26 years, they said, thank you very much, you're out, and uh, retired as a commander, which uh, has many benefits. You get a small stipend, very nice, but the big thing is the medical. It picks up what Medicare doesn't, mm -hmm. which in my case turned out to be very valuable. So uh, I'd like you to just reflect on those experiences a little bit. Were there challenging times that you remember where you're like, I don't know if I can get through this or I don't know if uh, I can come out the other side? Um, what, what were some tough times that you had in the military and maybe some lessons you learned? Well, I guess the the biggest challenge I had was we were coming back into port in Little Creek, Virginia, and uh, I was a junior officer and went and picked up the pilot. Every time you go into port, even though the captain is in charge of the ship, when you go into uh, uh, go into tight spaces, you need a pilot to to take care of the ship. So I pick up the pilots, being the junior officer. I get up to the bridge, and the pilots there, captains there. The captain turns to me and says, you got the con. Well, that's a big deal to have this bringing the ship in as a junior officer. And uh, at first I thought he was kidding, but no, he wasn't. So I started giving orders and I had to basically tell the pilot what I was about to say rather than wait till you say it, because mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, they'll get nervous. And pretty soon they, they realized I knew what I was doing and uh, got the ship in and had a parallel park it next to another ship, which is, again, a big deal. We had twin screws, so you basically had to turn the ship around, you know, the port ahead a third, the starboard back a third, and so forth. And I did it, and uh, it was a big deal. Then I went to take the pilot back down to the rear of the ship again, and they said, no, 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 you don't, you know, <laughs> you don't do that anymore. You, you earned your stripes. So that was the probably looking back at the Navy, one of the highlights, you know, the right. challenge which I was able to do. And, uh, you know, to this day, I remember that very distinctly. Yeah. Um, so, so what would you say are a few lessons you've learned um, through your different military experiences that you've taken with you through your life? Uh, Well, I'm, I'm thinking the, the standard perseverance, this and that. Uh, oh, paying attention, uh, knowing, the, knowing the regs, knowing what's legal, what's not legal, and following it, and, and keeping the Constitution in the back of your mind at all times. Mm. I mean, that, uh, particularly in today's environment, where you, you hear things and see things which go completely contrary to 
holding your right hand up and defending the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, and that basically, I think, is, is the, the lesson I've kept with me and try to uh, instill in my activities, you know, at work and, and at the community now is our, our community, the country itself, down to the community level, we have to work together to support each other. No, that's really, really important uh, words of wisdom that you're sharing about, um, about learning from each other and, and uh, working together. Um, how about, you know, to me, you seem a guy like, you know, like someone who is very prepared for things. You know, you, um, you're always, um, that, that, that's what I see in our interactions is that, you know, you never show up empty handed. You know, when we agreed to do these interviews, you know, um, Elliot gave me, you know, a stack of papers that included photos, you know, history, I mean, everything. So, you know, did you take some of that from your military experience? And because um, I think in life, you know, when we reach difficult <laughs> times, being prepared is something that um, that really benefits all of us. So can you just reflect on that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if the military was particularly important in doing that, but certainly it helped. You know, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of uh, the former speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who said when she does her work and so forth, she doesn't take it to a vote unless she knows she has the votes. In right. other words, you gotta prepare beforehand. Right. You don't go in, you know, ho hopeful or wishful and so forth. You gotta do the work beforehand. So there's nothing uh, that's a surprise when you actually get to the, you know, when the rubber hits the road, you know where you are. Mm -hmm. Okay, so th those are some great reflections on, on some of your military experiences. Yeah. Um, what, why don't you tell me a little bit about your work, um, the different types of, you know, positions you've had, challenges that you've had in these positions, um, and again, like just, you know, um, things you've taken away from it. Um, that you've applied to other areas of your life. Right. Well, just as, as background, um, as I said, I, I went to Adelphi, I got a master's, and uh, it, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about the high cost of education nowadays, terrible. So I got, got to Adelphi, and he said, by the way, would you like an assistantship? I said, what's that? Well, you help this professor out in her lab, basically, do the dishes and this and that. We cover your tuition. Okay, thank you. Fine. So that got masters. Hmm. Then I got a letter from NYU when I was applying. They said, we have fellowships available, which I misread. I thought they said, well, we have a fellowship for you. So I walk into NYU and say, hey, thank you very much, this and that. And they start looking at each other. They said, no, 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 you got to apply. <laughs> Whether or not that pushed them into a corner or not, I don't know. But I got a fellowship, thanks in part to uh, Richard Nixon who, by the way, he was the one who uh, started e EPA, and he had the fellowships, and I got a fellowship, and uh, did the work. And in the course of the getting the, my doctorate, I had a course in toxicology, and the book was maybe a half inch thick. The field was fell relatively young. And when I get out, <clears throat> uh, I have a, a note from Frederick Cancer Center, that they're looking for a toxicologist. Well, I took a course. 
which is no basis for the, they hired me and I was a toxicologist. Now that was before the American Board of Toxicology came into existence. It wasn't until 1980, that's six, eight years later, that they had a certification. So then I was at Mobile Oil at the time. I'd left uh, Frederick Cancer Center, went to Mobile Oil, and uh, was running the vivarium there. And I had, I think, four uh, technicians, which was still in contact with, you know, they're, they were young women at the time, and now they're some of them are grandmothers. And uh, we uh, had the exam, and there was another gentleman there. He wanted my job because I was running the, the thing, and we're both coming up. And we both knew that if I didn't pass the exam, and he did, he would get the thing. We both sat, we both passed, so that was good. So that was the, the uh, introduction to toxicology, and I was in a, a few different labs and uh, uh, different companies running studies or doing risk assessments and so forth. But eventually, I wound up with an Israeli company, uh, Makta Shemagan of North America, uh, based in Israel. And uh, I remember interviewing with them. The gentleman came in from Israel to interview me. And right away, there was a connection. We, we felt, you know, simpatico. And was hired. And, uh, you know, a week later, I'm flying to Israel. And uh, one of the, the uh, objectives, he told me, he said, we have this pesticide, Captan. It's a fungicide. EPA says it's a carcinogen. Your job, make it not a carcinogen. Okay. Ten years, took 10 years of data development, and I got enough data to say, hey, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a human carcinogen for these various reasons. Still couldn't get EPA to do much about it because mm -hmm. they, you know, don't bother us. We're, we know, so forth. And I'm talking with the uh, regulatory guy from Moktashim, and the name of Steve Johnson comes up. And he says, you know Steve? Yeah, I know Steve. Steve, I used to work with a Steve at Litton Bionetics, and he work, work, wound up at EPA, and he's very talented, so he kept on moving up. And now he was like third in command of EPA. Meanwhile, my wife at the time worked at Prince Racket Company, and we get him, he's a tennis, his whole family are tennis people, get him tennis rackets at half price, a few times, so that was a big deal. I said, well, have a meeting with EPA, you know, with, with Steve. We go into Steve, hey, hello, hug, nice to see you, blah, blah, blah. Tell him the story. He picks up the phone, calls Marsha, and says, hey, Marsha, you know, we got to do this. Turns out Marsha says, I don't have the time. I still don't have the time, but if they do a third-party review, we'll review that and so forth. Long story short, I know it's a long story, they did a th we did the third party. They looked at it, and they agreed with what I had said, and it is no longer a carcinogen. So with, I guess, 19 years at Moktashim, that was the one big thing I did, but yeah. that was an important thing. Yeah, sounds like it. And it sounds just like, um, you know, we spoke about, you know, resiliency, you know, in your military experience. Yeah. You had to, you know, go through these challenges at work and, per, you know, persevere through that. So, um, yeah, I always like hearing, hearing those stories as well, um, 
about your work, you know, your different work experiences. And I know you're even consulting to this day. You're still doing some consulting in the field. Yes. In fact, I'm working with a company in, in New Zealand and uh, they have a product they want to register to uh, uh, address the invasive cane toads in Florida. Now, these toads were brought in to kill insects, which are eating the cane, the sugar cane. Um, but they're invasive and they eat a lot and they are very poisonous. So the problem is if the dog sees the toad, ah, grabs it, mm -hmm. die, the dog dies 15 minutes later because wow. it's very toxic. So we're in the process of, of having meetings with EPA and get the, the product registered. And it's a very innocuous product. It's eugenol, which is used in uh, FDA's approved. It's minimal risk so forth. But still, even though it's minimal risk and uh, we have all the data which has been developed for the compound and there's a lot of literature, the procedure is, I wouldn't say so much complicated as a lot of I's need to be dotted, a lot of T's need to be crossed, and if you miss one, it gets kicked out. So we'll have the pre-meetings and so forth. And what I suggested to the company initially, because um, we started this last year and then they, they held off for a while, is when I'm ready to go before I submit it, which is one person looking at it, I need somebody else to look at it also, to double check before you submit it. It's sort of like Nancy Pelosi, knowing it'll, it'll work. Right. And uh, because if you miss anything, they kick it back. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, you know, you're at a different, you know, different phase of your life, but you still continue to work. Yeah. Do you think, um, do you prioritize that as something that you need to do to just like you would stay physically active to keep, you know, keep mentally sharp? Like, um, is that, is that one of your things you've learned through life? Well, what, what do you think? I, it's interesting in that when the company put it on hold for last beginning of last year, um, I said, oh, okay, time to retire. I said, fine. And so I was basically retired. And then uh, about two months ago, they called me up and say, hey, we want to get back in the game. Are you, are you still interested? And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about retiring, uh, but I'll have a look. When I looked at it again, I got the uh, enthusiasm back. Mm. I said, oh, you know, it's... It's not so much work as interesting, yeah. enjoyable. Yeah. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. And they were very happy that I did it. Mm. And it's interesting. I was rereading some of the documents I had written initially. I look at them. I said, hmm, not bad. You know, they're, they're pretty good. So uh, I'm hopeful that we can get this actually submitted and approved. Right. And at that point, I'd say enough. Yeah. So I think that's pretty admirable that, you know, again, you continue to, you, you seem like, again, you, um, just like with, with the military and with the work and, um, is that you, you know, you're very like dedicated to what you do. Um, and you, you know, you're, you're all in. Um, and that, again, I think it's something that served you well through the years is just, you don't do anything kind of halfway. You're like, yeah. You seem to really go at it. And, and to me, again, that's a sign of how resilient you are. Um, why don't we shift a little bit? Uh, we talked a little bit about the military. We talked a little bit about work. Um, I think the next thing is, is kind of, your, you know, um, 
your your belief in the importance of movement and exercise. It's been definitely, uh, you know, you've been a role model for me in that regard um, since since I've known you. And then, you know, learning more about what you've done through the years. Um, how did you get interested in exercise? Um, and how did it evolve into, uh, you know, um, these uh, endurance events? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can certainly tell you how it evolved. How I first got interested, I can't remember, to tell you the truth. But I, I was basically running four or five miles a day. And when I was up in bioassay systems in Woburn, Massachusetts, uh, I was, you know, running. And there was a guy named Ernie Marquez who was in the company. And he knew I was a runner. And he said, hey, marathons. I looked at him like he was nuts. What are you talking Marathons? That's like beyond. We're like, no, no, no problem. I'll teach. I'll train you this summer. We'll go down to the Marine Corps in 1984 which he did and which we did. And uh, having done that one marathon, I got bitten by the marathon bug and started running marathons, and uh, which were delightful in that, you know, I'd run in, in London and San Francisco and, and all over the place. Uh, and you said total of 42. Um, so I was physically fit which brings back into why I am so positive on physical fitness now is that when I had my aortic dissection, okay, I was training for the Boston Marathon, which was in two weeks after, you know, after my dissection. So I was physically, I was in good shape. And the surgeon said, had you not been physically fit, you would not have survived. And most people with aortic dissections don't survive. 90% don't make it. So that, uh, underscored the fact that, yeah, you got to be physically fit because you never know what's going to come down the road and be as physically fit as you can. So uh, that's why I continued. In fact, when I got out of the hospital, I asked them, can I still run? Because I had some problems with my toes and, and this and that. And they said, no, 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 we want you to run because, you know, that keep you in, in good shape. And I actually did two or three half marathons subsequent to that. But by the third half marathon, my feet said, I think I told you this, they said, you know, enough. And now, of course, I can't run basically at all, but so be it. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, you know, that number 42 to me, you know, uh, it's an amazing number just to think about it. You know, some people go through life, they don't never complete a marathon. Some yeah. people go through life and they do one and they say, you know what, that was great. I'm glad I did it. <laughs> I got that checked off my bucket list. Yeah. And um, but you continued to do this for I don't know how many years you started in eighty four eighty four yeah and then until um, two thousand and nine is when okay. I had that okay so, so we're talking for twenty five years yeah you know if you did forty two we're talking a couple, couple one or two, one or two, one or two yeah. a year one, yeah. yeah so so what kept you motivated you know during those like to go and say you know what. I'm going to do another one. I'm going to do another one. Like, yeah. you know, obviously you like the experience. You said you like to travel and, and see different parts of the world. Um, yeah, what kept you going with that? Uh, and keep, you know, keep that motivation, keep that dedication uh, to just continue challenging yourself at that level. You can ask someone why they like ice cream. Why do you keep eating ice cream? Because <laughs> you enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. It's simple as that. There's okay. no, I don't think there's a higher 
uh, reason sure. other than, hey, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Was it the social piece of it? Was it no. the uh, environment, like that you were in different environments? It was, was a it... challenge of... of, of the challenge. Yeah. Challenge of being able to do it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you know and, and of course, it's, it's, it's not easy to do a marathon, but it's, it's doable right. if, you, if you train. Yeah, and if, you know, we talk about the element of endure. Yeah. To me, you know, to get through 26.2 miles requires a lot of that. And um, so, you know, that's, to me, that, again, demonstrates your resilience, your physical resilience, um, you know, uh, that you've developed through, you know, through these different experiences in your life. We talk, you know, military, mm-hmm. work, running, you know. Um, yeah, it's just really interesting to me that, um, you know, and even to this day, you know, you your belief that, Movement is a part of life. Movement is a key form of prevention. Why don't you speak to that about, you know, again, even though you're at a different stage and you're not doing marathons, you keep doing it. I mean, how many times a week, Elliot, do, do you exercise? I'm, well, well. Daily? Almost basically daily, yeah. yeah. I mean, like I, when I'm not coming to the F3 and so forth, and even when I come to the F3, I, I have a Nordic track in the basement for aerobic which I'll go on an hour, you know, and start sweating because at the F3s, we don't sweat. We don't do really aerobic stuff. And I miss the the running, the aerobic exercise from running, which I can't do anymore. So I fulfill that need um, through the the Nordic track. Yeah, I didn't even know you did that. So that's that's interesting. Um, And it's amazing that, again, you're you're really uh, dedicated to all this. So, you know, obviously you mentioned the aortic... Um, dissection. I think we need to dive into that a little bit, if you're okay with yeah. telling us a little bit more about that whole experience. You know, uh, tell us, you know, from the beginning, you know, um, how did that start? And just, you know, different different pieces of that whole experience. How did you get through it? Um, because it was obviously um, quite the challenge that you faced, again, yeah. um, head on. Well, um the 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 origin of why I had the aortic dissection is, in my opinion, my neighbor who was a physician, who I had a, a call for something and and uh, she said, oh, "I'll give you something." I said, "No, no, it's nothing." And I'll give. You. My wife said, "Just take it." So I just took it. It happened to be uh, a drug, um, which turns out. Uh, well, I took I took one pill. I went out for my run, and halfway through the run, the legs froze. I mean, I had to walk home, and I say, Gretchen, I said, you know what this? And I look up the side effects. I said, Jesus, you know what the side effects are? She said, to her physician credit, No, I don't know what the side effects are. I told her. She says, Oh, I'll give you something else. I said, No, thank you. <laughs> Nothing else. Okay, now that was at, at point A. It wasn't for like two years later, I had my dissection. You say it's not, a, not related. Then an epidemiology paper comes out, which does you know, risk, risk analysis and so forth, and says, oh, this Levitra drug and aortic dissections are linked, and they're linked over years. Mm. In other words, you can have the drug here and have an aortic dissection there. So I'm convinced that's the reason for the dissection. When it happened, I was sitting at my desk with computer, 
and just, you know, went out. And my wife comes home, finds me on the floor, vomit, and this and that, take me in. Now, here, here's where advocacy, having an advocate, is important. Because we came to the hospital, the old Princeton Hospital, and they basically said, well, we'll observe him, and then, you know, we, we think he may have had a seizure. My wife said, he doesn't have seizures, at least I didn't have men. <laughs> and uh, she called my cardiologist, and he said, well, I'll, I'll have an echo next, next morning. So she comes the next morning, and she says, what did the echo show? And they said, well, the technician hasn't shown up yet. Well, again, the advocate comes into play. The technician came pretty quick after that. And the technician's going, and I remember sitting there, and she's listening, and she says, oh, I have to make a phone call. She goes out and calls the cardiologist. And he gets on the speakerphone and says, Gordon, you're a dead man. Unless we get you to UPenn, I'll call ahead. They'll have the operating table ready and, you know, so forth. And then they're dicking around helicopter or this or that. And he said, get on an ambulance and go. You know, it's, it's, it's time critical. Get me down there. And uh, the last I remember telling the nurse, that, don't forget to call my wife to say we made it okay. And that's all I remember. And then I was out. And I was out like for three weeks. And during that time, uh, during the operation, you know, I had died three times. My heart stopped and, you know, so they'd lost me. But I had a good surgeon. Well, good surgeon is an understatement. You know, uh, Joseph Bavaria, world class, just, just terrific. And, uh, and I woke up three weeks later or whatever, and I remember waking up, I was being hoisted up, and I said, how do you do that? And they, you know, he talks, <laughs> he's, he's awake. How would do what? He said, how'd you get that board under me? Because there was a board under me lifting me up, you know, on the police. And they laughed because the board was, was under me all the time. So, and then when I'm recovering, uh, they bring me down to uh, uh, what turned out to be dialysis because I had lost my kidneys. I didn't even know what it was until I finally figured it out. And I told, asked the doctor, when do I get off dialysis? He says, well, how much urine are you making? And, oh, I'm making two or 300 mLs because we're measuring. He says, well, come back when you're making around 1,200, you know. Eventually, I make more. When do I get off dialysis? He says, well, the bad news is every day you're not off dialysis, the chance of getting off goes down. Not mm. many people get off. Whew. Well, okay. Finally get out of the hospital. I'm on dialysis. My wife takes me three times a week down locally here for dialysis. And I start pestering the physician. When do I get off dialysis? When He's an Indian guy. He looks at me. He says, oh, you like taking risks? I'll take you off. Come back next week, no dialysis, we'll take your blood, stat, and if the creatinine is above a certain level, to the chair. Otherwise, you come back a week, we'll check again. And, of course, I came back and came back every month, every six months, and now every year go back. So my kidney function is about 28%. The creatinine is high, uh, BUN is high, but it's steady. So it's enough. In other words, my kidneys are de deficit, but they're just enough to keep me off. 
which is remarkable. I mean, the fact that I survived dissection is one thing. The fact that I got off dialysis is entirely another world which most people don't get off. In fact, usually it's a, it's a death sentence, yeah, you know, sure. dialysis. And uh, so, so here I am now with low kidney function, still exercising, and uh, enjoying every day. Yeah. And, and, and you get to the point where you say, well, if you're 80 years old, you only have so many years left, so many days left, try to enjoy every day the best you can. Because as much as you'd like to think you'll be, you know, you'll, you'll survive the, the lifespan that, you know, you're destined to, you're not, you know. Otherwise, we'd have a world full of old, old people. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, hopefully we're moving in that direction. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm asking, you know, a lot of the same questions, but, you know, what did you learn getting through that whole experience with the dissection? Like, what lessons that you could tell, you know, young, younger people that if uh, that helped you get through, like something that, like you said, not many people get through a dissection. Yeah. Not many people get off dialysis, yeah. but you were able to do both. And you were able to get back to doing half marathons, yes. you know, with, you know, if you don't mind me saying you had a, a few toes amputated after yeah. that whole experience of being in the hospital, you were able to do that. So yeah. what, what do you think? What are, what are some things that come to mind when, you know, that you can impart to other people who may go through challenges in their life? Don't smoke. You know, t take care of yourself. Don't smoke. Um, I have a, a cousin who's 12 days younger than me. He's on oxygen. Why? Because, among other things, cigarettes and all the other stuff also. Sure. And uh, it, unfortunately, it does matter. We had a neighbor. She passed since passed, but she was on oxygen also. Why? She smoked. So don't, don't mistreat your body if you can help it, in addition to exercising and so forth. You know, try to try to eat healthy. Not too much ice cream. <laughs> you know, for that one. Before. Yeah, but uh, just just pay attention because it, it does matter. Mm. And of course, the problem is when you're a kid. You know, you're invincible, yeah. and you can smoke all you want. Everything is fine, but you don't realize it's going to affect you later on. Sure. What about your mindset? What type of mindset that you ha do you have to have to get through those challenges? Because I would assume, you know, you need physical toughness. Yeah. But you also need, you know, and you have, and I know it because I've seen it, mental, you're mentally strong and you're mentally tough. What kind of mindset do you have when you're going through something like that? What are you, ta what are you telling yourself? What are you thinking? Um, obviously, you're feeling vulnerable. You know, you have some vulnerabilities, but you also must have some kind of a mindset that allows you to get through that time. So, what kind yeah. of mindset do you have generally in your life that's well, allowed you to persevere? Yeah, basically, it's a positive mindset. Uh, when I went through the dissection, there was never a point where I actually came to grips with the reality of what the dissection was with regard to how close I was to not surviving. Right. I was going to survive. It wasn't a matter of not surviving. I was going to survive. It wasn't a matter of not getting off dialysis. I was going to get off dialysis, which is, doesn't make sense, but I never thought that 
uh, you know, I was down in the dump. In other words, I never went down in the dumps to go have a di dissection. Oh, I can't run like yeah. I used to. Oh, I'm on dialysis. Oh, I can't do this and so forth. It was always, we're going to move forward. It's always looking yeah. forward. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. and which turned out to be correct. Sure. Yeah, it was very, you know, strong uh, will to live. Um, and, you know, I'd like you to, to go back a little bit. You had mentioned, you know, how important an advocate is. Um, talk a little bit about some of the people in your life that have been there for you. You know, whether it is be going to college or going to the military or at work or in personal life. What are those people, those advocates, what have they done for you? And, and what, um, you know, uh, how do you feel about them? Well, I mean, Dick Bardo, the gentleman who got me into the Navy, for sure. I, I to this day, I'm I'm thankful for him. He unfortunately has passed. Um, of course, my wife, the big advocate, um, all the time. <laughs> which, literally, I wouldn't be here without her being an advocate. Uh, those two stand out. Thinking others. Well, the, the gentleman from Moctezumagan who who liked me and was you know ad, you know advocated for my my uh, he believed profession in believed in me yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. which was which was nice yeah you know and even currently uh, the the gentleman at the uh, environmental commission Ephraim Ephraim sure. Sure. you know he calls me Boychik <laughs> you know you know there's, I'm not sure why but he he to me to I look. He looks at me as you know his kid, even though I think I'm older than he is. I think I don't know, but but he likes me, which is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, just to reflect a little bit on what we've talked about so far, you know, you've demonstrated you know kind of these main areas of, of resilience. So we talked about physical resilience with all the all the things you've done to build that in your life. We've talked about. Uh, emotional resilience, how you talked about having a positive attitude and that will to live. We've talked about mental resilience, how you've constantly challenged yourself to work in, in your mind and in doing things, um, which we're going to even get into more. And also the social piece, um, that social resilience, we're stronger with other people behind us, with a group. And um, why don't we go to that piece a little bit and tell me a little bit about your experience in F3 and what you've gotten out of it um, and why you think it's been good for you in this phase of life and why it's been good for me and maybe some other people. Um, for the, for the uh, listeners who don't know what F3 is, can you just tell them a little bit about it and, and why it's been a, you know an important thing for you? Yeah. Well, F3 was, I think, developed by two guys down in South Carolina and, and basically designed <clears throat> to get men together to work out as a, as a, uh, a team, uh, a community, uh, and the three F's are fitness, uh, fellowship, and faith. Fitness, obviously, is you work out and you try to be fit. The fellowship, to me, is, is the most important part in that it's a group you belong to and you support each other and you have community and you're not isolated. It, it's a anti-isolation group in that it's, I think, very, very important 
And that's what brings me back, really, is the fellowship. The faith is non-denominational, basically to say, hey, uh, we're here, we've worked out together, let's give thanks to our our good fortune and and not overlook uh, or, or forget to acknowledge that we're lucky to be here and and give thanks and 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 help others through the faith yeah no i know it's it's been you know it's been an important part of my life and uh and it's obviously the way that we met so i'm grateful for that and um yeah let's 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 shift uh shift focus a little bit um talking about the different hobbies you have um and again it may be how that's that's kind of stimulated your mind and continue to throughout your life um you know, we've talked about the hobbies of running. Um, we've talked about your work. But there are some other ones that I'd like to get into because, you know, we talked about in the very beginning of the podcast how you got the name because you do photography. Yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, a little bit about the photography. Um, what got you interested in it and kind of how it's been a part of your life because uh, you've taken some amazing photos. I'd like to hear about some of those. But... Just start from the beginning. Right. Well, uh, I got into photography from my grandfather, William Goldenberg, who was a professional photographer at a studio on Sutter Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, East New York. And uh, <clears throat> when we moved up to Golden's Bridge in Westchester County, you know, he, w- he moved up also. He had a darkroom there. And he taught me darkroom. You know, we'd go into this, this darkroom and and uh, develop, and he teach me stuff. And in fact, he, we, he had a five by seven enlarger, which is a huge machine. Couldn't fit in the dark room. He had to go in the in the garage, and he had to use it only at night because otherwise it'd be too much light. Right. And when I was thirteen, he gave me a present of a Graflex, a four by five camera, which I still have, although it, it no longer uh, needs work. It holds four by five film, which of course nowadays your iPhone does as good a job almost as as that. And uh, I started from there, you know, uh, two and a quarter film, and uh, eventually digital. I took a course on psychological portraiture. That was also one of the nice nice things. I was taking, forget how I took the course. It was. At NYU, I think, uh, a guy named Sing Sai Schwartz, obviously a mixed marriage, Sing Sai Schwartz, and he taught about psychological portraiture, and one of our assignments was to take pictures of our neighbors and bring them in. And at the time, I had neighbors, and I took one, one photo of Eleanor Dearborn, and the highlight is when we they gave him in, and he holds up my portrait of her to say, this is what I'm talking about. You know, I, my chest came out, you know, that I, that I captured it. And, in fact, it's probably on there when it shows up. Yep. Uh, um, <clears throat> unfortunately, we're talking about longevity and so forth and so on. At age 50, he goes to sleep. Poof. Doesn't wake up. Mm. You know? And, and the other gentleman who, at age 50, uh, Glenn Gould, who's a pianist, so I do piano also, you know, I, I'm starting to do piano again, 
because I had, you know, all these years I hadn't practiced. And uh, phenomenal pianist. I mean, unbelievable. Uh, but he had a stroke and he was going downhill and his father took him off life support, mm. you know, at, at, at 50. So we never know. You know, the fact that we're here now, we have to, again, be thankful and appreciate it. Yeah. Why don't you tell us some of your favorite fo- fo- your photographs that you've taken? Um, you know, we're, we're approaching Martin Luther King Day. So yeah. if you could tell a little bit about that photo and maybe some other ones that are some highlights that you've taken. Yes. Well, w- one of the ones at, at Cornell with that 4 by 5 Graflex, I took a picture of the crowd at, at, at a football stadium and I thought about it. I planned ahead to say I want it very sharp. So you cut the lens down to f22 and a slow shutter speed. So you don't take the action shot, but they're lined up in the huddle or whatever, ready to go, take the picture. And it's so sharp that when you look at the picture, it's just dots. But you blow it up, blow it up, and blow it up. You can actually recognize people. That's yeah, amazing. So it just, just it's a great amazing. shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then uh, with Martin Luther King, um, I was again at, in Golden's Bridge, New York, which was a progressive community, Jew, basically Jewish, uh, dirt roads, you know, no, no city water, you know, you drip wells and septic tanks and so forth. And I was at uh, a junior at Cornell. I was 20, I think. And they said, uh, oh, we're having this march in Washington. Do you want to go? With the bus going down. Sure. You know. I'll go, you know, but it was like, fine, let's, you know. So I brought the camera and uh, took a whole bunch of pictures. I was never very close to Lincoln Memorial. So while I was there for the I Have a Dream speech, at the time, I I didn't hear it. I didn't remember it, you know. Uh, It was only after the the fact because I was a kid, Mm -hmm. you know. I was there for the interesting group. But... Uh, this coming Monday, because we're having uh, Martin Luther King Day, and I'm going to uh, present the photos which I took there. And I think I may be the only one at the whole presentation who physically was there. So, again, it's... uh, And I remember it through the photos. I don't remember, you know, without... If I didn't have the photos, I probably wouldn't remember. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so we talked about the football photo. Yeah. We talked about Martin Luther King photo. I've seen some of these, so I, I you know, I, they're, you know, they're amazing. Talk about the one on the, um, uh, when you were in the, was it ROTC or Navy? Oh, the ship? The ship. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was, I was a midshipman at Cornell and they, they took us, uh, for a, <coughs> a trip on an aircraft carrier to get us interested to see if we want flight school. You know, get us interested in flying. So we're in the in the uh, tank deck, uh, or hangar deck rather, um, and with two other guys, and we're walking and come to the end of the ship, the bow, look around and see a ladder. Oh, climb the ladder, climb up the ladder, brings us up to the flight deck, the catwalk on the side. You know, holy cow! And their plane's taking off. I got my camera. And I panned a shot as it went overhead, Perf- perfectly panned it, and, uh, which is amazing. But we didn't stay there very long because Chief Petty Officer came running down the deck. You yeah. guy, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, because it, that's one place you can't be 
during sure. flight operations. It's just much, much, much too dangerous. But but I got a picture. <laughs> yeah, those are some great great stories, and uh, you have so many photos that uh, you know. I know you were telling me recently you were. You know, you were developing them, or uh, I don't know if you were scanning them. I'm scanning them now, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I just, it's been a big part of your life, the photography. And yeah. we talked about, you know, the music, we talked about running. So you really have these hobbies that, that have allowed you to um, to remain, you know, sharp and remain active. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a model that a lot of people as we age can, can follow. Um, you know, I'd like to you know, kind of uh, go, go in a little different course here, and I hope it's okay. You know, I feel so comfortable talking to you because we're friends. Um, and, you know, we're highlighting these amazing things you've done in your life. And you've done so many amazing things, and, and uh, you're a role model for, for, for many of us. Um, but you're also human, and you've also made some mistakes. What have you learned? You know, what, do you have any regrets? Do you... Do you, um, in it, I hope it's okay that I'm asking this. No, you um, ask. I because, mean, an answer, but yeah. I'm going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, listen, we're all, we're, all, yeah. uh, we're all fallible. We all have things that we wish we would have done a little differently. Um, yeah, and, and maybe what have you learned, you know, from those maybe uh, experiences that, that you could pass on? I, I think it, it's interesting. Now that I'm going back and doing piano, I'm thinking of my piano teacher, Muriel Brooks, who's long past and so forth, and thinking that, well, she didn't teach me as she should have as far as practicing, which I'm trying to do now. Yeah. And uh, I've got to the point where while I could fantasize, I'd love to be like a Vladimir Horowitz and you know be able to play. No, no, you don't need to be like Vladimir Horowitz or Glenn Gould to enjoy the piano. Mm. You just need to do it your level, you know, and and... So I've learned that, mm. which is important, because you, you discard this notion, this fantasy, which is not helpful that you want to be the president of the United States. You're not going to yeah. be president of the United States, yeah. but you can be the Environmental Commission. You know, yeah. you can you could uh, present locally. You can you can do things. Don't bite off more that the fantasy allows you to bite off that is not reasonable. Mm. You know, and do, do what's reasonable and enjoy that. And realize that at the end of the day, you and, and uh, anyone else who's a millionaire, we're all the same. Yeah. We're just human beings. And all the money in the world doesn't make you any better or happier. And in fact, in some cases, all the money in the world doesn't make you happier. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so you have this really human, humanistic view of society, you know, that we're, you know, we're, we're all equals, you know, yeah. we all have, we're all on this earth for a limited amount of time. And, um, Can we you change know, that? God, you know, yeah, I, 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 that's I, one of the fantasies, but. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about that, but um, we sure, you know, we, we definitely have a lot to learn from each other and a, a lot to learn about, you know, working, coming together, you know, more. Um, Elliot, anything else uh, that you'd like to conclude with? Um, anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to talk about um, before I give, you know, my two cents on the summary of uh, of our time together? Well, I would say uh, select a few things which you enjoy doing. In my case, gardening. 
practicing when I, when I finally sit down, of course, the photography. Uh, but also, I think uh, paying attention to relationships and not taking for granted, which I sometimes do my wife. You know, she does everything. In fact, if she were to disappear, I would starve to death. I haven't shopped in 35 years. I have, literally have not shopped. I have not cooked a meal in 35 years. I'm not done. I don't know how to do the laundry. I don't even know how to do the washing machine. Literally. You know how to do a lot, Elliot. I know. But, but you know, so I need to remind myself to appreciate her, you know. And, and, of course, in that regard, we all have our little twerks. And, and she does, too. I mean, she, she flies off the handle at the slightest thing. And a moment later, she's back to normal. The problem is, when she flies off the handle, it upsets me such that, you know, it takes me sometimes days to recover. Mm. So. Yeah, we all have those types of interactions with our families yeah. and loved ones. Um, yes, it's been it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking with you, learning learning more about you, hearing some of these stories for the first time, hearing yeah. some of the stories again. Um, like I said, I've learned so much from you on how to be resilient. Um, we talked about all those ways, you know, that, that I feel like you're, you're like a great example of that. You know, also that we're not perfect and, and yeah. you know, we go through life and we learn from our mistakes <clears throat> and we, we move forward. Um, sounds like you're grateful for a lot of people that, you know, that, that have been a part of your life and, um, and, uh, you know, allowed you to, to persevere or, or allowed you to, you know, to, uh, to keep going. Um, I think uh, you've, you've definitely shared that. Um, so, um, you know, as we start this Navigate Health podcast, um, I think you've given us a lot to think about um, because health is a complex thing. We have a lot of struggles. We have a lot of challenges, even if we are healthy that we have to get through, um, you can be the healthiest person, you know, and still go through these immense challenges and, mm -hmm. and how do you get through them? Um, again, you've given us a lot to think about, a lot to um, where we can focus on, the things we can control. Um, so any parting thoughts for me as I start this, you know, new thing in my life, um, listening to people's stories, um, what, any piece of advice for me as, as I go forward? The only advice or suggestion or comment I would make is that we generally fall into habitual uh, actions which, which define us in a way. We do this, this is what we do, and so forth. On occasion, we should step back and say, wait a second, this is what you do all the time. Do you really need to do that? I mean, that you think that's what everyone has to do. It, it's not the case. People can literally change, step out of the, the framework which they're normally mm -hmm. in, discard that, and go in a different path, and the world doesn't come to an end. Because most people go through life and they're locked into their, what they do. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the TV thing or whether it's a, they're, they're crazy on football or this and that. You can, you can actually change takes takes effort to do but also takes knowledge or or uh, acknowledgement of what you're doing and realizing that it's being done uh by you and it's not 
automatic. It's not needed. Yeah. You can, in fact, change. Yeah. So that's a really important, a really important thing, is that you know, it's that you can pivot in your life and you can yeah. try new things, but don't maybe continue all the things that are not serving you or others. Right. You know, I think that's you know that's what you're that's what you're telling. E that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. When yeah. when it's not serving you and and others, you've got to see it. And then make the make the change. Yeah, that's what happens many times is you don't see the sure. fact that it's not serving you. Yeah, and that's why it's important to have people in your life, you know, like mentors or friends that can that can help you navigate those situations. So, um, so again, this has been you know truly a pleasure. Um, you know, interview uh, somebody with with just a really interesting background, a, an interesting life you've lived, and I hope you continue. To thrive and and uh, and do all these great things that you're doing, and and again, whether it's, it's things you you just enjoy for yourself, or it's things you enjoy giving back to others, I think you you know you kind of have that great balance of of those two things that you know that I've learned from you. So again, uh, I'm grateful to to have you as the first guest guest on this podcast, and um, and I hope uh, we can do it again sometime because um, I really I've learned more about you in the probably in the couple hours we spent together, you know, preparing for this and doing this, mm -hmm. you know, than I did over a couple of years knowing you. So it really yeah. just shows like, sometimes you just need time one-on-one -on -one to really delve into things and understand people. And uh, again, thank you. Any any final words? No, I, I, I agree with you. And, and of course, going back to the F3 is we have a lot of F3 people. I don't know them other than the F3 names and, oh yeah, I recognize them. But I don't know the details, and that would be nice to know what they do, what their backgrounds are, and all this other stuff, which we don't get into with F3. But Yeah, and that's why we have the social events, yeah. and I think, um, I think you have to be intentional about it. I think, uh, I think it's something you should bring up at our next uh, you know, workout group, uh, that you'd like to get to know some of the guys yeah. more. And I think, you know, you know, from my experience, everybody's open to, to doing that. Um, you just got to find time. You got to find time and be yeah. intentional about it. So I'm glad we we found the time and and we we got to learn about each other and um, and I think a lot of people can learn from your experiences. And once again, thank you. Okay, great. <laughs>